Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Professor James Shapiro. He's in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at University of Chicago. He's been researching um, for decades and has uh, many, many papers written. Very interesting person to speak to, and I wanted him to be a part of the cancer book that I'm putting together. So he's back. James, thanks for coming. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, this time, you know, like last time with the virus book, uh, there'll be some prescribed questions. So I want to ask you, first of all, what's been uh, your background in terms of uh, studying cancer throughout the years? You know, what's been your interaction with it? Well, I, I never studied cancer very uh, significantly until uh, a few years ago, I got interested in, in how cancer cells restructure their genomes and some of the amazing results that have been published when uh, people started doing whole genome sequencing on cancers, on tumors. And uh, uh, the subject uh, caught my interest because I'm interested in how cells alter their heredity, uh, alter their genomes. And cancer cells seem to do it in a very dramatic and uh, at least some cancer cells in a very dramatic and and, uh, widespread fashion. I got interested in that. And then somebody who's interested in evolution uh, from a a more contemporary perspective rather than having uh, accidental mutations and natural selection be the whole story said, how can we make people aware of different ways of thinking about evolution? This is well, maybe we can have a, a symposium on cancer and evolution to show that new ways of thinking about evolution is actually of some practical utility. And uh, we did, and it was very successful. And I think uh, people will carry that on. Hopefully, they will not slip into the, the idea of thinking that evolution is just uh, random mutations and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and natural selection. Tell me about, um, you know, you said cancer can remodel, uh, well, cancer cells have remodeled underlying genomes. What does this remodeling look like? Like, how would you characterize it? Well, there are different ways that uh, cancer cells do it, uh, and they have different names. Uh, One of them is called chromothripsis, which literally means chromosome shattering, where uh, cancer cells uh, take a chromosome and break it into pieces uh, in a mitotic division. And then they can reconstruct it after the division. And um, they also replicate parts of the the chromosome. And so you can get a whole chromosome completely rearranged and restructured in uh, a single cell division. I have a quick question here. Let's say there's, uh, I'm just picking, you know, a a gene is a a thousand base pairs long. And from what I understand, when, when DNA, you know, gets transcribed, there's loops, there's stems, there's all kinds of activity happening where different parts of the genome uh, get in contact with each other that otherwise might not be. So if I consider, again, like a gene a thousand base pairs long, is that gene transcribed always faithfully as one to a thousand? Or can you have uh, where one to 500 of that sequence is taken and, you know, 501 to a thousand of another sequence is taken and that's a new gene, but it comes from two different pieces 
that are kind of brought together and transcribed together. Does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen like that, but sometimes in the splicing process and in the processing of the of the post-transcriptional RNA, uh, you can get what's called trans-splicing, and two different RNAs can be combined together. And then that, of course, can be reverse transcribed into DNA and create a new chimerics coding region in the genome. And that's one of the ways that it happens. When people have looked at this thing of processes of criminal thripsis, they've learned an awful lot about it. And uh, it fits with something that I think is very important to understand in cancer and in evolution in general, which is that genome change doesn't happen just by accident. It generally happens in response to some kind of trauma. And we now know the chromothripsis arises when a cell divides improperly. And for some reason, and there are multiple reasons, a chromosome gets left behind when the parental cell divides. And that chromosome gets encased in a structure called the micronucleus. And at the next cell division, the micronucleus is included in one of the daughter cells and it shatters the chromosome, it fragments it. And then a process called alternative end joining replicates parts of the chromosome and sticks them back together. And you get a whole new genomic structure from that. And that's quite an amazing process, but that's far from the only thing that cancer well, cells can do. On, on that. So when that happens and you said this, this um, broken off piece of genetic material ends up in its own, like, I guess, temporary nucleus, that's preserved separately through cell division, and then only one of the daughter cells gets it, or both? It goes to one of the daughter cells. It, lagging chromosomes and chromosome fragments are included in, in micronuclei. And it's a, it's a well-known process that occurs in plants and animals. It's part of the response to some something that makes cell division occur abnormally. And the consequences of it are uh, these massive chromosome rearrangements. And this has been studied in some detail. And recently, a paper was published which looked at it in, in great detail uh, last year and showed how quickly in a, in a single cell division you can get massive chromosome rearrangements. But to come back to something you said earlier about during the cell cycle, different parts of the uh, genome come together. And another kind of chromosome rearrangement found in other cancers, it's called chromoplexy which means chromosome weaving. And chromosome weaving is very interesting because what you find are there are multiple breakage and rejoining events in a small subset of the, of the genome. Say we have 43 chromosomes out of, the, out of the 26, 27 chromosomes that we have. Only three or four would be rearranged. And this is something that occurs not at cell division, which is what, when chromothripsis occurs, but occurs during the transcription of different parts of the genome and different regions come together to interact, to control transcription during uh, interface part of the cell cycle, which is completely different from the, the mitotic part of the cell cycle. And this is a, a, a different kind of process. And so you get a small number of chromosomes with multiple rearrangements between them. And the rearrangements are generally clustered spatially as well. And that's seen in certain kinds of cancers. Uh, it was first noticed, I think, in in prostate cancer. And uh, that's a completely different kind of cell process going on that restructures the genome. So the, there's several different ways that cells can make these large-scale genome changes. How, how do you think cancer first starts? So do you think there's an epigenetic change first? Or do you think there's this restructuring first or a mutation first? Like, How do you think it first starts? I think cancer starts from trauma. 
So uh, what is trauma? Physical, uh, radiation, uh, metabolic? Be, what do you mean? It can be physical. There's a, a really interesting paper by Theodore Bovary in, published in 1914 about cancers that appear at wound sites or at scars. And scars somehow predispose the cells to, to uh, become uh, cancerous if there's a subsequent injury at the same place. And that can take a delay of, of 20, 30, 40 years. So physical injuries can lead to, to uh, cancer formation, presumably because they disrupt normal cell division and uh, growth and lead to the formation of, of cells which uh, will divide in irregular fashion. Well, maybe physical uh, you know, scarring or physical hits hinder cell-to-cell communication or, you know, I don't know, I guess change well, pathways or maybe cause fibrosis to be in a inside a tissue and again disrupt the signaling that's possible let me just carry on for just a second because we have physical trauma we have radiation as you mentioned we know that chemicals cause cancer so there's chemical injury that can uh, cause cancer there is infection that can cause cancer and infection by both viruses and by bacteria so there's all kinds of different processes which can go on which can disrupt the normal reproduction of the cells and initiate uh, a series of transformations which lead to cancer. They don't always do it, but they can do it. And we, we know that there's close associations between all, all these different agents and the incidence of cancer. But what do you think happens first, depending on the insult? What, what would your guess be? Would there be, you know, again, epigenetic change first? Or, you know, is this... Um chromosome rearrangement, uh, kind of a final straw when there's no other methods to be tried? Like, does anyone know the order in which a cell or population of cells attempts to right itself to its previous condition? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I think we don't know a lot about the early stages of cancer, but people are, can study some of these things in the laboratory. And um, we know that DNA damage is an important part of it. In the case of physical trauma, apparently the cells become polyploid, which means that they grow without nuclear, without cell division. And then uh, they form these polyploid cells, which ultimately divide. And they divide in a way which is different from normal cell division, where there's all kinds of systems in place to make sure that each of the daughter cells gets the right number of chromosomes. And when these polyploid cells divide, that doesn't happen. And you get genome rearrangements as well. And so that's one of the consequences of of injury. Breakage of DNA, of course, can disrupt the replication of the genome and and cell division and can lead to events where parts of the genome are, are, are joined together. And then when the cell divides, you get broken chromosomes. And that sets off a whole train of processes, uh, which uh, Barbara McClintock discovered in the 1930s and called the 
breakage fusion bridge cycle. So direct damage to DNA is, is important. The infectious agents, okay. uh, the bacteria produce toxins, many of which uh, damage the DNA of the host cells. And uh, that's part of their process. And the viruses can insert themselves into the genome and uh, disrupt, again, normal cell division and stimulate genome rearrangements. If viruses can do this, if chemicals can do this, what about extracellular vesicles, which to me seem to be similar to viruses? They have genetic material inside them. They're enclosed in a membrane. They can enter into cells. I mean, has anyone observed that uh, extracellular vesicles from cancer cells can cause other cells to turn cancerous? Well, extracellular vesicles have been shown to play a signaling role in cancer. And I'm not entirely sure of the details. What about like a, a, a bacterial plasmid, you know, a bacterial toxin you're saying, but is the toxin packaged in a plasmid and does it enter into the cell that way and thereby cause cancer? And if so, wouldn't that be very similar to, again, extracellular vesicles if they had the right cargo? Well, the, the toxins of the bacteria which infect mammals tend to be carried on viruses, prophages, and um, they're quiescent viral genomes in, in, the, in the bacterial genome, and they carry the sequences for toxins, and there are many different ones, and it seems yeah. to be okay. a, a very regular pattern among pathogenic bacteria. Well, in addition to cell-to-cell communication, do you think that you know, EVs may have the possibility to change gene regulation in a cell to the point where it, uh, it turns aberrant? turns cancerous? Well, EVs carry RNA and protein as well as DNA and certainly may carry information which would disrupt normal replication. And uh, so that could be another cause. Absolutely. Yeah. The reason why I say it is if you have a, you know, like say an RNA virus and it enters the cell and it sheds its capsid, all that's left inside the cell is a strand of RNA, supposedly. So then it's just merely a matter of uh, the sequence of the base pairs of or sequence of the, you know, yeah, the sequence of the base pairs that compose the RNA. If you look at the cargo of an EV versus, you know, some virus, again, it's, they're both essentially kind of the same thing. You know, once they've entered into a cell, it's just, again, the sequence of the, uh, the composition of the RNA that yeah, decides well, the action. Or not. Well, the viral RNA generally is, has evolved to be able to uh, reproduce itself and produce more virus particles, whereas the EVs, as far as we know, don't have that ability. Okay. But, Do you know anyone that's looked at a um, a tumor and, and characterized the heterogeneity in terms of like a 3D model of what does the heterogeneity look like? And, you know, at a genetic level, what does it look like? What are these rearrangements of uh, chromosomes and genomes look like? Is there any particular patterning or interesting features? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, people have done that mostly based on, on very conventional ideas about evolutionary change. And, and they, they're looking again at the idea that it's, it's uh, single genes that are responsible for the cancer without considering that the structure of the genome itself may be an important participant in that. But I was wanting to say was that after the genome is damaged, there are two kinds of genome repair systems. There are systems which uh, tend to put the genome back the way it was originally or close to the way it was originally. And those are generally called error-free repair systems. And then there are systems which are mutagenic systems. They've been called error-prone, but in fact, they're systems that have evolved to make changes in the DNA. And I think that's a very interesting fact, one of the 
most important things I've learned in, in thinking about cancer in the last couple of years, realizing the uh, tremendous mutagenic potential for um, some, some of the repair systems human cells and other eukaryotic cells have. And rather than just sticking DNA back together, which is what conventionally happens in DNA repair, uh, these alternative systems can change the DNA. They can copy from one piece of DNA and then jump and copy from another piece of DNA. Uh, they can join different sequences together. They can make DNA, which has no template at all. There's this uh, remarkable DNA polymerase called DNA polymerase theta, which is involved in this uh, process of alternative repair. And uh, the more you read about it, the more amazing it is. And I think we have to ask ourselves, why do the why do cells have these change operators, these these repair systems, which make different changes and can create uh, novel genome sequences and make hybrid coding regions and so forth? These are all things that are found typically in cancer cells, and there's they can also create extracellular DNA, extra chromosomal DNA, uh, which is a, another hallmark of of advanced cancer. What do you what do you mean? What is extracellular DNA or extra chromosomal DNA? Well, in other words. Circles of DNA, which are not part of the chromosome. Do they sit in the nucleus or they sit in the cytoplasm or where are they? They're in the nucleus. They get transcribed. They function. They often have very interesting properties, like uh, they make some of these chimeric hybrid oncogenes, which are found in certain cancers, uh, which seem to promote uh, cell proliferation, where uh, the cells shouldn't proliferate and contribute to the oncogenic potential of, 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 the, uh, of the cancer. And this is huh, increasingly a, a feature of, of many cancers. And these mutagenic repair using this polymerase data is part of the process which, which does that. And we know it's, it's not just an accident because theta is a, a, a very important protein. Because if you take away the normal non-mutagenic repair that you find in, in eukaryotic cells, then theta becomes an essential function. And you can't mutate it and remove it. You either have to have the, non, the non-mutagenic DNA repair system or this highly mutagenic system. And uh, I've spent some time thinking about why is it highly mutagenic? And I think it's specifically for, for situations when uh, it's necessary for cells or organisms to change their genomes dramatically. And cancer provides us with the, the most striking examples of how that happened. What about, again, has anyone looked at the composition, the 3D spatial map of what uh, you know the gene rearrangement, or sorry, the, the genome rearrangement looks like in a cancer tumor? There is some work on that. What they characterize mostly is what are called topologically associated domains. And what that means is when two different chromosomes come together, you can sometimes co-precipitate them and chopping them up and, and linking fragments together, you can see which chromosomes pair with close to other chromosomes. And what has been found in cells which have different uh, rearranged chromosomes, including cancer cells, the partners in these topologically associated domains change, and they're different. And that obviously is part of the genetic basis for uh, the different characteristics that the, the uh, cancer cells have. So they're beginning to look at that, but not in any exhaustive way. What, what do you guess you might see? I know tumors are heterogeneous, but what do you guess? You'll see cells with a very different uh, three-dimensional organization. And um, we know um, in evolution, 
that uh, changes in chromosome structure are very important for changes to create new species and new taxa. And uh, I have a colleague, Henry Hang, who I think you've talked to, right? Yeah, I've spoken to him once, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he has this, he's pointed out that there's this, what he calls karyotype information. When you rearrange the chromosomes, you change the character of the cells and of the organisms which are encoded by that, that genome. And um, yeah, like if you have a if you have a long strand of of DNA that's been unzipped, how do you know if you're a you know a tRNA or mRNA where to attach? I mean, you get attached at potentially many many different spots, but you know if a large enough segment gets unzipped, again, how do you know where to attach? And you know if there's rearrangement, I just you know the genes are in different orders now, but they're still there. Again, how do the uh, the molecules know where to go? If the answer is not, oh, they randomly you know, go around until they find the right spot. The molecules are guided by regulatory sequences, which are distinct from the, generally distinct from the, the coding uh, sequences. And uh, they bind to different factors, transcription factors, for example. And they target the chromosomes, which have those sequences, to specific domains. And what happens in some cancers, like, uh, for example, uh, lymphomas in the, in the bloodstream, is that the uh, rearranged functions bring a growth stimulating sequence to a domain which is highly expressed, which it normally wouldn't be. And so the chromosome rearrangements also rearrange the relationship of the sequences which encode the, the proteins with the uh, signals which tell the sequences where to go in the nucleus. And so, oh, okay. so you get, you get a, a, a different sort of program of physical localization of the different parts of the genome. And I think that's going to play a, a very significant role in how the genome encodes things differently when its structure changes. We have a lot to learn in order, about. Yeah, no, definitely. In, in order to rearrange in the first place, though, wouldn't you have to remove a whole bunch of epigenetic marks, then restructure, then how would you reapply the epigenetic marks so that they serve the same function and the same winding of the DNA around the uh, you know, histones, et cetera. Like, you know, with this restructuring, again, how do you know how to mark up the genome and how does that, what do you think happens epigenetically? Well, epigenetic regulation is one of those things which extends, can extend long distances in the genome. And it requires specific sites or sequences to initiate and others to determine how far it goes. And what happens when you rearrange the chromosomes is you change all the epigenetic interaction as well. So changing the structure of the DNA without changing any of the coding sequences still leads to massive changes in, in uh, expression of different parts of the genome because you may separate them right. from, from their normal epigenetic control sequences. And what's the yeah, but, but do, you, do you think that you have to remove marks first to allow the genome then to, to change, the underlying genome to change? or do you, think, you think it can happen with marks preserved? And then once there is a rearrangement, then what? There must be a feedback mechanism where, all right, this mark is no longer appropriate now, remove it. Or now there's an exposed area that shouldn't be marked. You're getting into the fine points of epigenetic control. I'm not sure what you mean because a lot of these changes, like the chromotrypsis, occurred during mitosis when, when the epigenetic markings on the chromosomes are quite different than they are. When the, during interphase. So at different, oh, okay. at different points in the cell cycle, all of these regulatory functions change. We, we normally don't think about 
the genome is the, the dynamic structure that it is, but that that's an essential part of, of, of how it functions. It, it changes through each cell division cycle. And a region which is in one epigenetic state it may not be there all the time. Yeah, well, I understand that uh, it is very dynamic. I just wonder, um, again, with this chromothripsis, you know, again, they would be cascading epigenetic effects and all that that would probably, you know, allow it to happen or enable it to happen. And then once it does happen, you know, the marks again would come back or now have to rearrange or be applied differently because the gene structure is different now. Exactly. But the exactly. genome is different. That's, that's exactly the point. So the way things are organized along the chromosomes and relate to each other is very important to how, they, how they're expressed and how they function. And that's why changing those relationships uh, can lead to new developmental patterns. And it's been, everybody's had this sort of particular idea that each, each gene is, is the fundamental unit, but there's a lot of other things in chromosomes besides genes and um, epigenetic uh, markings and uh, epigenetic regulation is one of the things which is information, important information. It's there in addition to the, the content of each individual gene. Going to a, you know, somewhat of a, a little bit of a different subject. Okay. Again, when a, a tumor is heterogeneous, you know, its, it's genomes are restructured, et cetera, and you compare that to the regular somatic cells of a given organ, you know, now the, the, the cancer cells would have different, you know, exterior membrane receptors. Uh, and they would look very different, I would think, to the body, you know, into the immune system, et cetera. But from an uh, infective perspective, like how would you expect the microbiome, you know, the localized microbiome around cancer cells to be different from somatic cells? How would you affect, how would you expect that their susceptibility to viral infection would be different than regular somatic cells? Because they're, you know, again, they're, the whole cell has essentially been changed. I know that there are people who are studying that and they find that cancer cells have different microbial associations from the normal cells that they're related to. And I think all possibilities are, are, are possible, are there. And uh, what effect that can have on the ability of the cancer to grow and to spread, uh, to survive the immune system. Uh, I think we're going to learn a lot about that in the years to come, but I think we don't have any kind of a comprehensive way of thinking about it right now. Do you think it is a real effect that cancer cells would have a different localized microbiome and would have different, uh, exter- you know, exterior membrane uh, features and have different, susceptib- different susceptibility to bacteria, viruses, et cetera? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What about cancer cells themselves? Some people seem to say they're lone rangers. They just want to divide and exist on their own, but they do seem to act in concert at the tumor level, you know, recruit blood vessels, angiogenesis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, break off to, to, to make metastatic sites, et cetera. At what point do you think cancer acts alone? And at what point do you think, like, how many cells are needed for cancer to act as one? And does it act as one? I think there are experiments that people have done in animals in very artificial situations where they can transplant a single cell, a tumor cell, and have it grow into a tumor. Um, and that's been the idea that uh, cancer is derived from a single cell. Uh, other people... Uh, think that it's disruption of, of the organization of a tissue that makes a group of cells behave differently and ultimately become cancerous. And as you pointed out, uh, many tumors are heterogeneous. The cells are not all the same. And at different places in the body, when they metastasize, for example, different clones of cells may be more 
important and more prominent than, than in other places in the body. So I, I think variability is a, a, a common biological uh, property and uh, diversity. Clearly, uh, as cancers advance, they become more complex and more diverse in their genetic constitution. So I think we, we well, I, I don't know that we know too much about how the different cancer cells interact with each other. Yeah. Do you think they act as one? Like, you know, a biofilm kind of acts as one. I mean, each thing, you know, each, each bacteria needs to eat on its own, but they also do act in concert and they have emergent properties. So do you think that cancer cells also have emergent properties and act as one at the tumor level? Well, there are some tumors that are, are have a characteristic, have physical, recognizable physical characteristics. And uh, if that's the case, then obviously there's uh, some kind of coordinated uh, multicellular activity going on. And of course, cancer cells come from cells which are, are, were involved in coordinated multicellular activity. So it's not surprising that they should do that. But okay. Do you think they go through a stage where they are individual cells? Or that if I, if I pick an organ, like a kidney or something, and I have a really small tumor in there, most of the action and activity of the kidney is normal, but there's a small part that's tumor. But let's say the tumor grows and grows, and now the tumor is pretty big. You know, maybe it takes up half of the kidney or something. At what point do you think the signaling from the tumor and the needs of the tumor becomes predominant and then, I guess, silences or dampens down the normal functioning? And at that point, now you have a real big-time dysbiosis. Like, do you think there's this competition of, um, well, obviously, cellular needs you know, for resources, but cellular, I guess, votes, you know, in the running of the organism or the functioning of the organ. Do you think there's this, like, a, I guess, is there a quorum sensing, a quorum type activity that, you know, at some point the cancer overrides because its, uh, it's votes, you know, are, are more than that of the, the healthy cell? Well, we know that cancer is far more than just out of control reproduction. And cancer cells uh, come from human cells, which can emit lots of signals and receive lots of signals, which uh, affect their behavior. So the, uh, the case you've cited, the example you've cited, is one where you can have either outcome, I think. You can have many uh, dysplasias, which never develop into real cancer. Again, do you think cancer is a, uh, does it see itself as a separate organism with its own homeostatic drive and everything? Or do you think it's kind of every man for himself? you know, in a tumor or in, uh, in any cancerous structure? Well, Henry Hang says when you have a cancer cell and it's restructured its genome, it's a new species. And I think uh, it follows its own path. It's also influences, influenced by things that happen to it. And one of the most important things that I think came out of trying to think about cancer as a, a disease where cells change their heredity in response to uh, conditions that they encounter is that the recognition that, that a lot of treatments can induce genetic transformations in the cancer. And that sometimes chemotherapy may be counterproductive in that it will trigger the formation of a much worse cancer than the one that it was originally treating. And uh, I think there's a, a group of people in, in cancer therapy who are starting to devise ways to uh, f- keep cancers manageable and tolerable for patients and try to avoid triggering their transformation into something much more deadly, which is what happens uh, often when, uh, or almost inevitably in many cases, 
when uh, uh, the maximum tolerable dose of chemotherapeutic agents are, is applied. And there's a, a lot of documentation now that uh, cancers progress after uh, therapeutic treatments, and they change and become much more malignant. And if we can avoid triggering that response, then we can treat them more effectively. They should Cancer may become a chronic, livable disease, much the way HIV has become. If we stay away from trying to, to wipe it out completely and triggering some of these major transformations. Gotcha. Okay. Do, do you think there's, uh, what, what's the nature of the communication between a primary tumor and metastases? What do you think is going on there? What kind of signaling? Well, I mean, what, what would be your speculation? I know that you're not an expert in that area, but who knows what would be your speculation as to what's going on? Well, I think it'll run the gamut from cells that are uh, in continued contact with the, the, what you might call the mother tumor. And there are other cases where the cells that metastasize will be completely independent and do something quite different on their own without any communication with the original tumor. One of the things which uh, allows cells to metastasize is cell fusion with normal cells that go towards a different tissue. And these cells acquire the ability to go to the new tissue from the normal cell that they fuse with, but also because they now have two nuclei, their division and uh, genome stability is disrupted. And so they can then evolve into something quite different. Wait a minute. So if I have uh, liver cancer and it metastasizes to my pancreas, do liver-pancreatic cell combination fusions form? Well, some people have found is a cancer cell and a normal cell can fuse. And then that cell can migrate to the tissue where the normal cell is normally found. And uh, I don't know where they do the fusions, but it may be in the bloodstream, it may be in other tissues, in the lymphatic system or someplace else. But that, that creates both a different tissue tropism for the, the fused cell, plus which it, it creates a, a binuclease cell, which is a genetically unstable cell. And so the potential is there for further evolution of the tumor. Do these fused cells uh, divide? Can they divide and still survive? Or what happens to them? Well, they, they have issues dividing because they have multiple nuclei. And um, I, I, I don't know the details on this. I can give you some references. I published them a couple of years ago. But we, we shouldn't try and think of, of, of cancer as having a single cell origin and evolving in a simple tree-like fashion to produce progeny cells because it can fuse with other cells and um, there can be other kinds of changes that occur during the, the evolution of the tumor. Okay. The immune response to a primary tumor, would that be different from the immune response to a metastatic lesion? Because the primary is in its home territory, essentially, you know, liver cancer in the liver. Mm -hmm. And a metastasis, again, in this example, would be cancerous liver cells in the pancreas, for instance. So I would think that the environment that, uh, you know, cancer cells are in the metastases, they're in kind of a foreign environment with, a, again, foreign localized microbiome signaling, etc. I would therefore think that they're more likely to be picked off by the immune system and harder to hide. And they'd be more of an immune response to metastases than the primaries. But what are your thoughts? Clearly, cells that metastasize will have different surface markers and different tissue affinities from cells that haven't metastasized. And uh, whether that exposes them to immune surveillance or not, 
and whether that makes them more or less resistant to immune surveillance. What's, uh, I don't know, what are some of the newer things that you've discovered about cancer that you, you know, that maybe aren't really publicly known very well, but that fascinate any new items that you've run across that are interesting? Well, I think we've covered it in most of the conversations we've had. It's really the, the uh, tremendous potential that cells have to alter themselves and to uh, acquire novel characteristics. But it's in, as I said, it's generally in response to some kind of trauma. And uh, I think the, the most important take home is that in treating cancer, we should be very careful not to make it worse. And we should have therapies which uh, keep in mind our capacity to induce changes in the cancers by uh, treating them with very toxic chemical agents. Yeah, no, I agree. After, after our cancer and evolution symposium, I thought, well, maybe people are learning that less is more. Rather than throwing the maximum toxic chemicals at a cancer, at a tumor, treat it more carefully. It won't develop into something that's completely fatal. Are there, what organisms do you know of that don't get cancer? I mean, do you, do you think like single cell organisms can get cancer or does that not make sense? I mean, what organisms get it and don't? Well, any organisms that are completely single celled, because when I was studying E. coli and looking at cell divisions, once you have a, a single cell on, a, uh, on an agar surface and it divides, the two cells elongate alongside each other. So they're interacting with each other and they've ceased to be single cells and now some kind of unit, and eventually they'll grow into a colony or a biofilm or something like that. I, I would be surprised if, if our cells were any simpler than that. Okay. In terms of metastases, what do you think governs the initial formation of that? Like at what point and what, what signaling is going on where a primary tumor is, is like, all right, you know, we got to break off and form metastases. Do you think it's just it's just not enough resources, so that's the the result is the cells detach and look for more resources and better better environments. Or what do you think drives metastasis? Well, I think in different cases it will be different uh, drivers. I mentioned cell fusions. There may be, as you as you suggested, metabolic drivers need for uh, resources. But uh, metastasis is is an advanced stage of cancer, and if we can keep cancers from becoming metastatic. Uh, I think we can do a, a lot better in, in, in treating them. And why do you think certain cancers have certain tropisms? Just like viruses, it's weird. They seem to have tropisms for certain organs to metastasize to versus others. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think in each case, it's going to be a different explanation. Why do you think different cancers have different tropisms for certain organs to go to preferentially? Oh, right, right. What I was going to say was, if the cancer cells have altered their heredity, or their epiheredity as a result of some trauma. When they do that, they change the, the expression of the genome and the tropisms that they develop may be a reflection of the changes that have been triggered in the initial carcinogenic event. Just like different organisms occupy different ecological niches, different cancer cells may tend to be go to different parts of the body, different tissue niches in the body. I think I think it helps to, to think about uh, cancer as as uh, much as we think about evolution. The body is a complex ecology. The cells uh, they're under pretty tight controls to, to, to stay where they are and do the things they're supposed to do. But when they get out of control, we have to think of them like, as I said, like in Henry Eng's view, like new species. 
and uh, they'll have different tropisms and different behaviors. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I just wanted your, uh, your thoughts on why. Do you know if any autopsies have been done on, you know, older people to look for, um, like micro tumors and what appears to be healthy tissue? And, you know, if so, has that been done and have those micro tumors been characterized maybe to see, uh, you know, early onset of cancer to get some details into what's happening? Well, I, I think we know that uh, in prostate cancer, for example, almost everybody gets it. Most men die with prostate cancer that hasn't developed to the point where it's gotten to be a serious problem. We now have uh, PSA tests, which are very sensitive, so we can detect it much earlier. But it's almost inevitable we'll develop that. And I'm sure the same is true of certain cancers in women as well. And also there are lots of changes uh, to the genetics, our so-called healthy cells, uh, where they're expressing things that are characteristic of cancer cells, but they don't develop into a full-fledged cancer. Okay. In, in evolutionary terms, do you see cancer as, a, I don't know, an evolution gone wrong? Or like, how would you characterize it, again, in evolutionary terms? Oh, you mean in terms of its effect on human longevity? Why do you think cancer forms in the first place uh, from an evolutionary perspective? Is, there, is, it, is it an evolution? Is it a, just a maladaptation? I mean, how would you characterize it just from an you know, evolutionary biology standpoint? Cancer tends to be a disease of age. Organisms which live very long lives, like whales, for example, don't develop much cancer, or elephants. Uh, and we get cancer mostly in our 50s, 60s, 70s, and so forth. So it's, I think it's just part of human mortality. Yeah, I just, I just wondered, you know, again, evolutionarily, why, why do you think it happens? But uh, yeah, I know there's no answers. I just ask for speculation, but yeah. Okay. Well, Jim, always, uh, I want to ask, where can people find out more about your work? At my website at shapiro.bsd.uchicago.edu. Okay, that's the best place to go. Very good. Yes. Yeah, James, thanks for coming on again. It's always great to have okay. you on. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.